1 Corinthians chapter 15. We continue in our study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in this chapter that deals with the matter of the resurrection. The question is, how do you deal with people? What approach do you take with people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but deny the reality of their own resurrection? And in fact, the denial of the resurrection, that denial of theirs, has led to many errors in their church because they believe the resurrection has already happened. And unless we be too harsh on the Corinthians, I have to think that the changes that occurred in their lives in the first century, living in dark paganism, if you wish, and being brought to the light of the gospel by the Spirit of God, that the, the changes were so profound as to alter their perception of reality. I mean, it, they were new creatures. I mean, we live in, in a world that has seen Christianity for the last 19 centuries. Um, yes, there's still deep, dark paganism in, in various pockets, but generally speaking, I think the world is far different than it was in the first century. But haven't you ever heard somebody say that... Um, Something to the fact that something had happened or they had an experience. And they said, like, I felt like I died and went to heaven. And, and, you know, it's just an expression. But I think that the Corinthians in many ways did almost feel like they had died and gone to heaven, that the resurrection had already happened and that they were living the life of resurrection. That's where the Corinthians were. And, and it affected their theology, as we will see today. We've actually been seeing it all along, but Paul will hit on it today. The key issue is resurrection. Paul's been dealing with problems of behavior, but now we come down to the key issue, and that is resurrection. And again, I ask you, how does one approach the question of the resurrection when dealing with those people who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they do not believe that they will be raised from the dead in the future? Well, Paul does three things. The first thing he does is he begins with common ground. Rather than sort of attacking them, he says, okay, this is what we both agree on. This is what I preach. This is what the apostles preach. This is what you believe. And he gives us what is almost seen as a creedal form that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then Paul adds um, a, you know, a, to the witness list, if you wish, of other people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. And by the way, I, I'm convinced that none of these appearances are mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. But this is part of the tradition, and Paul has been to Jerusalem. He knows about this, that Jesus appeared to 500, more than 500 of the brothers. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And finally, he appeared to Paul. Um, that is, Paul was part of the apostolic attrition, uh, tradition. The Lord appeared to him. And although it was outside the mainstream events, that is, as to one who was abnormally born, and we saw last week we could translate this word freakish, that Paul is sort of a freakish apostle, which I think the Corinthians would probably agree with. They didn't think much of Paul at this point. The fact is, he, the Lord appeared to him. He preached the resurrection. They believe the resurrection. On this, they are agreed. So that's where he starts. Now today, Paul will say, for the sake of argument, let's assume that you're right, Corinthians. If you're right, what are the implications? And that's what we will see today. Uh, if the Corinthians are right, then there is no resurrection, not only for us, but for Christ. 
but Christ was raised from the dead, Paul will tell them. But then he will also go on to say, well, okay, if you're right, then, then why are people doing these things? We'll get to that in a bit. Let's read, first of all, verses 12 through 19. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In contrast to what has been preached and what they believe, by the way, that Christ has been raised from the dead, the Corinthians are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Uh, by the way, you notice that Paul says some of you, and, and we see this throughout the letter, which would seem to indicate that this isn't throughout the whole congregation, but it is there enough that it is affecting the whole congregation, that there are, I would even say, prominent members of the congregation who have influence, and they are saying there is no resurrection. Now, I think, to be honest, they did believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they did not believe that they would be raised from the dead. And Paul is basically saying, no, you can't have it both ways. If you say no resurrection, then that, that prohibition, that, that denial, extends to Jesus of Nazareth as well. You cannot say, oh, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but I, I don't believe that I will be raised from the dead. But Paul says, let's say, for the sake of argument, let's say that Jesus was not raised from the dead then what are the implications? Well, first of all, the preaching of the apostles, which they believe, by the way, is useless. Okay? The message that the apostles preached had no value whatsoever. Secondly, the faith of the Corinthians is also useless because their faith is based on the message. And let me just digress here for a moment. Uh, faith is not simply believing. It is believing something. And in the scriptures, it is believing what God has said. Uh, in our time, I think people think it is enough to believe. So that uh, Francis Schaeffer used to call it faith in faith. You know, that if you have faith, then you're fine. And, and, and Paul would say, no, what is your faith in? Okay, if the apostles preach this, your faith is in the message of the apostles. Well, if the message is useless, then so is your faith. By the way, Norman Vincent Peale said that it was his habit. He would wake up in the morning and before he got out of bed, he would say three times out loud, I believe. I believe, I believe. And then it would just sort of empower him for the day. But the big question is, what do you believe? It is not simply enough to say you believe. There must be a content to your faith. And here it is the gospel. The apostles are then found to be false witnesses about God, interestingly enough. If there is no resurrection, then the apostles have lied. Not simply about the resurrection. That's a given. Okay. But they've actually lied about God because they preach that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then God didn't do it. So they've actually lied, not simply about the resurrection, but about God himself. 
The resurrection was a physical reality. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus after the resurrection. There were people who saw him after that. They are not witnesses to some idea about the resurrection. I've mentioned this years ago, back when the Los Angeles area used to have two big newspapers, the Herald Examiner and the Los Angeles Times. Uh, They all used to have religion sections. And one year before Easter, I noticed, I got both papers that day, that both had articles quoting the German theologian Hans Kung. I thought that was really interesting, and so I wanted to compare. And in the Herald Examiner, the quote from Hans Kung was, Without Easter, there would be no gospel, not a single narrative, not a letter in the New Testament. In other words, no resurrection, nothing in the New Testament. But then over in the L.A. Times, he said, the resurrection is not an event in space and time, not an object of historical knowledge, but a call and an offer to faith. In other words, it's a great idea. Well, wait a minute. It wasn't an idea that these people witnessed. They witnessed the resurrected Christ. It was a space-time event. They saw Jesus. That's why they are called witnesses. And Paul says, but if there is no resurrection, then they're false witnesses, not only to the resurrection, but to the truth about God. The faith of the Corinthians would be futile. This is the second time he refers to their faith. And he points out three aspects of that futility. First of all, the living, you Corinthians, you Christians, you're still in your sins. Your sins have not been forgiven. Because remember, go back to the creed. What is it that we believe? That Number one, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Well, if he wasn't raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, then we're still in our sins. Our sins have not been paid for. Secondly, regarding those who are dead, those who have fallen asleep, they are lost. There's no hope. They're not coming back. There's no resurrection. That's it. End of story. And thirdly, if in fact there's no resurrection, Christians are to be pitied more than all people. Paul says, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. I didn't used to agree with this statement. I used to think, well, Paul, you're wrong, because, you know, if only in this life we are Christians, it is far better to be a Christian in this life than to be a non-Christian. I think you would agree with me. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying is, if you believe in the resurrection and the resurrection is a lie, you're living in a delusion. And delusional people are to be pitied. And people who have altered their lives completely to to follow a delusion, they are to be pitied more than anyone else. Paul moves on. In verses 20 through 28, he makes the case, in fact, that Christ has been raised from the dead. First, we'll just read verse number 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. By this statement, Paul reverses everything that he's just said. Because if, for the sake of argument, hypothetically speaking, let's say you're right, there is no resurrection, then the preaching is foolish, your faith is foolish, apostles are false witnesses, uh, you're still in your sins, the, the, the dead are lost, you're to be pitied, but Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, the message is not useless. 
Their faith is not useless or futile. The apostles are not false witnesses. You are not still in your sins. Your sins have been forgiven. Those who are dead are not lost. They will be resurrected one day. And we don't need anybody's pity. We're not delusional. We believe the truth. The truth is, Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, the beginning of resurrection. Now, it's just the beginning. The rest of it will come in the future. And that is the point, I think, that Paul seeks to make in this particular passage. Let's keep reading in verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. It's not an easy passage. I mean, there's a lot here. I think what will help us, the Lord willing, next Sunday is when we get to the last part of chapter 15, because Paul will touch on issues that relate to this. But let's see if we can break it down. First of all, we understand that we are sinners and that death came into the world because of one person. Adam sinned, it affects us all. In the same way, Paul says we will be resurrected because one person was resurrected, it brings resurrection for those who have put their faith in him. He is the first fruits, he's the first one to be raised from the dead. Now, you, you may wonder, well, wait a minute, in, in the Bible we have stories of people who were raised from the dead. Lazarus, for example. Yes, but Lazarus died again. Jesus was raised from the dead to never die again. He was transformed. Again, next week we will see more about this. And again, while I'm thinking about it, you will notice that Paul usually, I'd say most of the time, refers to the resurrection as the fact that Christ has been raised. That is, somebody raised him from the dead. And he says it here as well, that God raised him from the dead. That Christ did not raise himself. Because if that were the case, then we might say, well, well, that's, that's fine for him. He's Jesus. He's the Christ. And I'm not. No, God raised him from the dead. God will also raise us from the dead. In this passage, Paul talks about two things. The events that lead up to the atonement. I'm sorry, that lead up to the resurrection. That is the atonement. And then the events after the resurrection, which will lead up to our resurrection. That first of all, um, in Christ all will be made alive. That is, Christ gave his life. We believe that Christ died according to the scriptures. Died for our sins. And then he was resurrected. So first we have death. And then we have resurrection. It's interesting that you'll notice that death came through Adam. Death was not part of the created order. If you do creation, fall, redemption, the pattern, the paradigm, there is no death in creation. That's not how God made the world. 
Death brings the fall. Okay, so death is a part of a fallen world. Resurrection is not part of the created order. Because you have to have death before you have resurrection. So in creation, there's neither death nor resurrection. In the fall, there is only death. In redemption, there is death, but there is also resurrection. And Christ brings that resurrection. In verses 24 through 28, what seems to be a digression, Paul wants to point out to the source of authority for our resurrection. What gives Jesus the right? What gives God the right to raise us from the dead? Well, we see that, first of all, he was resurrected. And when he returns in what in the New Testament is called the parousia, the second coming, he will resurrect his people. And, and how can he do this? He will do this after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. And as we will read, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when he has destroyed death, resurrection will happen and we will be with him forever. It is a difficult passage, but I think it becomes a lot clearer once we get to the last part of chapter 15. And the Lord willing, we will do that next week. But Paul now, in verses 29 through 32, returns to that. What if you're right? If there is no resurrection, then, then I have a couple questions. Verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, one difficult passage follows another. Because here Paul mentions something that is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Um, that is, being baptized for the dead. And frankly, it contradicts everything we know about baptism in the New Testament. Another problem is, Paul doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is wrong. He uses it as an example without disapproving of it. And this is something, by the way, that is now practiced by the Mormons being baptized for the dead. What is Paul talking about and, and why does he bring it up here? You will notice something. There is a very subtle change here. Um, he speaks here in the third person, that there are those if you go back to verse number 12, he says, some of you, second person, which would seem to indicate that this is not a prominent problem in the Corinthian church. Uh, if any in the Corinthian church are doing this, they are a small, small minority. And they, in fact, may be people who have left the congregation, taking with them the idea of baptism. Beyond that, we know nothing about this. All we can do is make some assumptions and try to reconstruct. I think we can assume one of two things. Either there were Christians who had died without being baptized and people were saying, oh, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so died. They weren't baptized. I need to be baptized for them. Or there were people who had died who were not Christians at all. And people were saying, I need to be baptized for them for the salvation of their soul. In either case, Baptism is seen not as identification with Christ. It is seen as a magical formula. It's something that will produce something magical 
in this case, salvation. It will convey benefit to someone, from someone to someone else on their behalf. And if you stop and think a minute, go back through 1 Corinthians in your mind and look at the times Paul mentions baptism. The first one is really striking. It's in chapter 1. Uh, and it, I don't know, every time I read it, it still sort of surprises me because Paul says, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you. And just stop right there. That just seems on the face of it to be rude. I mean, that just seems to be an absurd statement. He's the apostle and he is to preach the gospel. And what is what is the Great Commission? Go out and make disciples, preach, baptize. And Paul says, you know, I'm really glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. He goes on to say, except Crispus and Gaius. And then later on in parenthesis, Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Like, Paul, you don't remember who you baptized? Well, I think Paul, in a sense, is distancing himself from their view of baptism, that it's some type of magical formula, that if you get baptized, it, you become impervious to something. Because he mentions it again in chapter 10, when he talks about Israel going through the Red Sea, that that was a form of baptism. And then he says, you know what? They had baptism and they had the Lord's Supper, the manna and the water from the rock, and they still died in the desert. And Paul is saying, listen, baptism, communion, it's not magical. It is not magical. But apparently there were those in the Corinthian church that thought it was, and therefore they're being baptized for the dead. Why bring it up? Because Paul's saying, okay, no resurrection, you die, that's the end then why are you being baptized for people who are dead? It's all over for them. Now, if you believed in the resurrection, then it might make sense. But you don't believe in the resurrection, so why are these people wasting their time being baptized for the dead? It makes no sense whatsoever. And then Paul turns around and says, well, what about us? He's in Ephesus at this point when he writes this. He faces potential martyrdom every day. His life was in danger every day. And when he says, I die every day, I don't think he meant literally. I think death was a reality. It was a, on any day he could have been put to death by those who opposed him. Uh, in chapter 16, by the way, Paul mentions, he says, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus uh, until Pentecost. He says, because a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me. In other words, God's opened the door. I can't leave. I've got to keep preaching. But you know what? There's a lot of opposition. And the opposition here he describes as wild beasts. Again, I don't think he's speaking literally. Because if he fought wild beasts, he'd probably be dead. Okay? And I think we'd know a lot more about it. He's talking about the battle as he preaches the gospel. He's like, why do I waste my time? If there's no resurrection, if this is the end of the story, if this is the final reality... And then he quotes from Isaiah, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's take the road of despair. If this is the final reality, then why shouldn't we do whatever we want? And have you ever thought, why don't people do whatever they want? Well, some people do, but many people don't. And, and why don't they? Because there is this sense that one day we will have to give an account for what we have done. If that's after we die, then that must mean some type of existence resurrection after death. And Paul says, listen, 
If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then, then why the baptism for the dead? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then why do I endanger myself every day? And now we come to what I think are the key verses for the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And they're just sort of tucked in there uh, where we might miss them, but I think this is the key to understanding the entire book. Look, if you would, at verses 33 and 34. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts, bad, or corrupts good character. Come back to your senses that you, as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. On the face of it, these verses seem to have nothing to do with what he's talking about. I mean, he just seems to have made a left turn and, okay, Paul, what are you talking about? But I think he's come to the heart of the matter here. He says, do not be misled. They have allowed themselves to be deceived. They have taken the path of delusion. And how have they done this? Bad company corrupts good character. I don't think he's talking about literal companionship. I think rather he's speaking of bad doctrine, bad theology, which corrupts good character. Now, let me just say, people are the conveyors of bad doctrine or bad theology. So maybe if there are people in the church who have bad teaching and they refuse to let go of it, maybe they need to go. On the other hand, I think we also need to acknowledge that good character is not something that human beings have. This is something that we have by the grace of God and by his grace only. The statement is not, it, it is a saying of that day. And he's trying to make a point. I think if Paul were alive today, he might say that a rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. Something to that effect. That if you put in a little bad teaching, it will end up corrupting the way that people live. You see, Teaching, if we take it seriously, affects the way we act. It affects the way that we live. And if, person, if people have bad teaching, it will, without question, on some, at some point, affect the way they behave. Now, again, let me give uh, a disclaimer. This is not to say that people with good theology have good character. Because, in fact, there are people who have good theology who have bad character. We are all sinners. We are all, our character is less than what it should be. But embracing bad theology has dire consequences in our lives. And Paul says, you guys, look at verse 34, come back to your senses. Literally, sober up. Okay? You guys have been drunk been a drunken stupor, you've been stoned out of your minds by this bad theology, snap out of it, wake up. This bad theology has affected your behavior. This intoxication that you have with bad theology has ended up leading you down the wrong path. And we've, we've talked about this before. The Bible does not condemn intoxication. It does not condemn being drunk. What it condemns are the things that people do when they're drunk. I mean, look, at, look at the various passages in Scripture. That's why drunkenness is so dangerous. And so, by extension, don't get drunk. Okay? But it's not the being drunk, it's what you do. In the same way with the, with the Corinthians, the bad theology, listen, it's bound to come in, but when you embrace it 
drink it in and you get drunk, it alters the way you look at the world. And I, I must confess, uh, uh, I've never been drunk, and so I, I don't, I don't know. I can only speak secondhand from what people have told me, and that from people I've seen who have been drunk, that their perception of reality is strongly altered. And boy, look at the Corinthians. They think the resurrection has happened. Okay. You know, I would say in modern terms, somebody's been smoking something somewhere because, boy, how would you come up with that? And as a result, they tolerate incest in their congregation. They go to court against one another. Men in the church are going to prostitutes and it's not condemned. They go to pagan temples and participate in pagan worship. There's discrimination at the Lord's table, and we could go on and on and on. Paul says, snap out of it. Wake up. Come to your senses. Bad theology has led you down the wrong path. He says there are some who are ignorant of God. And there is disagreement about what Paul means here. If, if he's talking about in the congregation or outside the congregation, the reality is they're delusional and it shows that they really don't know God. They keep talking about the spirit and being spiritual and spiritual gifts. And, and Paul's like, no, you know, in theological terms, they're just stoned out of their minds. They're delusional because of bad theology. Sober up. See the truth. Jesus was raised from the dead. And one day we will be raised from the dead as well. Hasn't happened yet, but one day we will be raised from the dead. In this section, Paul approaches the whole question of the resurrection by saying, for the sake of argument, let's take your point of view that there is no resurrection. And I think in the process has demolished their argument. So he's won, right? Well, there's winning, I guess, and there's winning. A problem still remains. How do you get your mind around the idea of the resurrection? Stop and think a minute. We've been talking about the resurrection for two weeks now. I think we would all agree on some. Hopefully we maintain what Paul says, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the uh, grave on the third day. And he was seen by witnesses. And that one day we will be raised from the dead. But have you ever really stopped to think about that? What, it, what does it mean that I will be raised from the dead? I mean, how do we get our minds around it? I mean, first of all, death is there. I mean, we're all going to die, and that's a difficult enough reality. But we've seen it happen around us. So we know, yeah, that's going to happen. But resurrection? And, and how can people be raised from the dead who've been dead for centuries? People who are dust, and, and maybe the dust has been scattered. How? Jesus being raised, that one I can get. Because he was dead for three days. His body's still in the tomb. You know where he is. He hasn't, hasn't you know, deteriorated too much. He's resurrected. But me? If I die, and I will die, and if Christ does not return for a hundred years, I'll be dust. How do I get resurrected? How does that happen? That's what Paul deals with in the final section here in chapter 15. And the Lord willing, we will look at it next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what Paul writes here.
doesn't argue for the resurrection, but trying to prove it, but to show us that it is essential, it is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without it, we are to be pitied more than all people. We thank you that Jesus was raised from the dead. It is the proof, it is the first fruit that one day we will be raised from the dead after he has put all things under his feet. We thank you for how Paul speaks to the Corinthians. That they have embraced bad teaching, bad belief, and therefore it has affected their behavior. May we be reminded that ideas have consequences. What we believe should affect our behavior. In fact, it does. But oftentimes we claim to believe one thing. But our belief is quite different and it's shown in our actions. May we in the days to come think about this passage of scripture. I look forward to next Sunday as Paul unfolds for us the reality of the resurrection. I ask that your spirit, your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.